Hey now, we are getting over and I am the Silver King. Adam Silverstein here to lead you through these hard times Dada, with your WWE edition of your favorite professional wrestling podcast. We're back after an absolutely loaded week of SmackDown and Raw to talk everything that happened in WWE over the last couple of days. And Chris, it was a long weekend. A lot of things happened in the world of sports, in the world of American politics, and in the world of professional wrestling. Uh, we're going to not talk about those first two on the show. This is a wrestling podcast more than anything else. But man, it has been, over the last couple of weeks, a whirlwind, uh, to say the very least, keeping up with wrestling. I mean, forget about just WWE. But AEW having full gear on a Saturday night, the same time as the Clemson-Notre Dame game, I mean, man, I I have been absolutely wired, tired, exhausted. I somehow managed to do an instant analysis podcast on Saturday night at 1245 in the morning. I'm just, I'm dead. So I am really excited to not so much get this show out of the way. I don't want to use the terminology. I love coming on here and talking wrestling, but I'm very, I'll be very excited when we publish this show. And then I have, you know, 48 hours ish, not to think about wrestling until NXT and AEW roll on again. So I'm just wondering, you know, I don't want to call wrestling a burden recently, but have you felt almost as if it's been tough to fit it in over the last week or two? Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, the last, honestly, probably the last month or so, you know, Mm -hmm. we've had last month or two, we've had a lot of WWE pay-per-views. There's been a lot of football happening. Uh, The the, the election was just whatever you were whatever you are it was just kind of hanging over everything so now it took so long yeah yeah so so now it kind of feels like we can like take a step back i slept in on sunday i slept in a little bit on monday you know back to a regular schedule uh, wrestling week now without a pay-per-view this week so uh yeah it kind of felt like a normal week and it felt like we hadn't had one of those in a while this is how i usually judge how busy my week is i have what's called a pico p-i-c-o projector in my living room. And what that is, it's basically a really small projection type of device, uh, projector, in other words, that's what it's called, uh, (laughs) that you can, (laughs) I don't know why I said that, uh, that you can buy on that. You can get them on Amazon. You can get them anywhere for anywhere between like 40 and 80 bucks. Right. And you can plug in like a device, like a Roku, which you all know, I'm a huge fan of Roku, even though they do not sponsor the show, at least not yet, yet. but uh, a Roku or a fire stick or any, you know, HDMI type of device. And you can basically create a second television screen on your wall, like a projector would work, right? You don't really need a projection screen necessarily. So I determine how busy my week is by how many days my Pico projector is not tucked away. And that thing has not been away for two weeks. It's either I'm watching the news simultaneous with uh, college game day at the beginning of Saturday, or I'm trying to, I had to prop up my laptop because I was watching the news and I was watching uh, AEW full gear and Clemson Notre Dame simultaneously at like eight o'clock on Saturday night. So I, I want to watch in this whole quarantine, this whole time that we've been spending home. My goal has to, was supposed to be to watch less television and 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 find more time to do things around the house, walk outside. But in addition to all of this happening, for those of you who aren't in Florida, which most of you are not, it's there's also been a tropical storm down here. So I've been stuck inside in the dark watching TV for the better part of a week and with, by the way, no social interaction because there's still a pandemic going on. So it's like, I don't know, it feels like I'm almost in a movie where like this stuff flooding into my brain informationally and I need some way to express it. So that's one of the best 
uh, things about this podcast is all these thoughts I've had about WWE over the last five days, I get to spew them out on a microphone. And unfortunately, or fortunately, really, you all get to listen to them. So that's why we're here to talk everything that happened in WWE on SmackDown and Raw. We're going to be previewing Survivor Series, an absolutely loaded show for you today. A couple pieces of business that you know we need to take care of before we get into the meat of the show. Number one, you want to follow all of us on Twitter. You can follow Chris at Chris Vanini. By the way, he's he's vintage Chris Vanini, but you follow him at Chris Vanini. I don't think he got the other uh, handle taken yet, but you should. Vintage Vanini. See if uh, that's available. Make sure you I'm, I'm sure up. it is. There's not many Vaninis out there. I'd be very surprised if someone had that uh, handle. But anyway, Chris Vanini uh, for him, at Silverstein Adam for me, the Silver King. But most importantly, follow this damn show at Getting Over cast. I know some of you had a lot of fun with our tweets over the last few days. I hope that continues. Remember, follow us at Getting Overcast. And one last reminder, head your asses over to Apple Podcasts, find our show, drop a five-star rating and review. Why am I so insistent upon this? I'll tell you why. Because after we got a couple more reviews coming in last week, our listenership went up and we are now the number 35 wrestling podcast on iTunes. Again, we've only been around since March. We've only done about 92 episodes here. We're already at 35 on iTunes. The goal on this show, the show's all about the five. Silver King's all about being number one. Now that's going to be difficult considering some of the wrestling podcasts that are out, that are out there. I would love to be in the top 20 wrestling podcasts in the United States of America. You guys, you loyal listeners can help us get there by leaving five-star ratings and leaving reviews. Very positive stuff for the Silver King and Chris Vanini. With that business now out of the way, Chris, you know what we do on this show. We slide into the main event. And really, this week, so much happened. We actually have a four-part main event for all of you before we get into the rest of the show. The first is not even anything that happened on WWE television. The company announced this week that Survivor Series in a few weeks will officially serve as the final farewell for The Undertaker. 30 years after his debut at the same event, he will say his final farewell. Now, this Survivor Series, Chris, was supposed to be held in Dallas, pretty decently close to you. And it would have been- Oh man, I didn't realize that. Now I'm disappointed. It would have been cool. Yeah, well, that's the same place he debuted. So clearly they had been planning this for a long time, you probably would have been able to go. You know, it's a Sunday, maybe tough, but it would have been great. Instead, this will be happening from the Thunderdome in Orlando, Florida. But it is still 30 years uh, from the event, the month. I believe it might even be the day. I would really have to check. But the parallels here are obvious, right? Now, WWE has not released what a final farewell is going to look like because, look, he already had his series on WWE Network that was kind of murky. I don't necessarily expect us to never see The Undertaker again. Like, I don't see this guy riding off into the sunset completely when we're still seeing Ric Flair and Hulk Hogan and some of these guys every once in a while. So I think we're going to see Taker on WWE TV in the future. But what I kind of feel like this might be is the last time he does anything physical on WWE TV. So when we roll into this, Look, we can fantasy book this out our asses, right? I have a feeling I know what's going to happen. I have no inside information. But if the Silver King was running WWE, 
If I was booking The Undertaker's final farewell, let me tell you briefly what I would do. I'd have him in the ring, on the mic, saying his final farewell, you know, talking about his his great career and, and breaking kayfabe a little bit. And right as he's about to finish, I would have The Fiend's music hit. I would have The Fiend staring face-to-face with him in the ring. I would have The Undertaker choke slam The Fiend. The Fiend get back up. Taker then tombstone pile drive him and the fiend sit up the way the undertaker does. The undertaker would then be shocked by that. The fiend would hit him in the mandible claw, hit him with the mandible mandible claw slam. And the undertaker 30 years later goes out on his back and you have a new king of the mountain in the fiend. Yeah, I think it's gotta end something like that. Uh, I looked this up while you were talking. It is 30 years to the day. November 22nd that he debuted. However, he debuted at the Hartford Civic Center. uh, He didn't debut in Dallas? Did not debut in Dallas. Oh, okay. Well, I messed that up, but I think Dallas maybe because it was in Texas. That was the the Survivor Series was going to be in Texas, his home state, or where he lives, plus 30 years, plus to the day. So that's that's where I got it confused. Yeah, I, I, I think it's, as far as we know, The Fiend doesn't have anything scheduled for Survivor Series, right? No, we're not expecting, um, you know, they're not going to be a title match as of right now, Orton or Drew McIntyre, which we'll talk about later against Roman Reigns. So then, yeah, Fiend has nothing. Yeah. So I I think that's it's I think it's got to be something like that. I don't know if I would have. Okay, here's how I would do it. I, I, I would do it cinematically and keep it all in kayfabe because there are no actual fans he's talking to. It's it's on TV. It's whatever. The the um the the boneyard match was incredibly well reviewed, and obviously you can't do a whole thing like that. But I think if you could do something cinematically, where essentially the fiend ends up, I don't want to say taking Undertaker's soul or whatever, or maybe he slams Undertaker in the ring like you said, and the lights go out, and he comes back, and the only thing the fiend is left holding is the the hat, and it's like the Undertaker kayfabe disappeared. I think that'd be cool. I, I want them to lean into spooky supernatural type stuff, especially if it's going to be the fiend. And, um, and I, I, I think the undertaker would do that. Cause we've gotten, we've gotten the, the, the breaking kayfabe undertaker in, in the last ride. So I think if he's going to go out, I would like to see him go out in kayfabe. Well, no, I think he should go out in kayfabe. I guess what I was just trying to say is when you cut that farewell promo, kind of like Mark Henry did Salmon Jacket, that was in I, I was there too. for that. I was there for that. One. I know. I'm so I'm still jealous of that. I got a lot more left in the tank. Um, <laughs> that's one of my favorite moments in history. So you staying, it's still in kayfabe, but when you're talking, you're kind of breaking the fourth wall a little bit. You're saying, hey, it's been a great run. My rivalries with Austin and Rock and blah, blah, blah. So he's wrapping up his career in a real way as The Undertaker, not as Mark Calloway. But then at the tail end, rather than thinking this guy is going to go out as Mark Calloway, he goes out as The Undertaker. Again, The Fiend shows up. He's hitting his signature moves on him. And The Fiend sits up just like the... Remember, like, we had the Brock Lesnar Undertaker. They both sat up and then they laughed in each other's face. So not exactly like that because Taker would be standing. But the Taker hits his tombstone pile driver on The Fiend. And imagine if he just sat up and, like, what that visual would look like the t- taker being shocked and then yeah. you go through the mandible claw process. And yes, I agree. The I, If you want to do it cinematically, you could still do it in the Thunderdome, but pre-tape it. And therefore right. you could add effects sure. and stuff. But but you're, you make a really good point in terms of like the fiend grabbing the hat or something like that. 
because what you want is for the Undertaker's hat to be in the Firefly Funhouse or his yes. gloves yep. or something like that, you know, or the Fiend to almost hang up his hurt heel gloves and start wearing the Undertaker's gloves or at least do it for one match, right? Those are the types of little touches. And they gave us some of those with the Fiend on Monday night. But those are the types of little touches that really take this character and really take the storyline over the top. But I would just, I'm just saying, and look, we have the ultimate preview for Survivor Series. We'll talk about it before the pay-per-view actually happens. It would be really tough for me for The Undertaker, this mythical, larger-than-life character, to go out and end his career, his entering career, or his regularly seen career, and not put someone over. And the, especially when WWE, as of today, has the perfect person for him to put over, and it's The Fiend. The Fiend, I know some people don't like it. Okay, it's it actually surprises me how many people don't like the fiend. Me and too. I think really I think that turn came right during the Seth Rollins feud because they got soured on Seth Rollins, they got soured on the fiend, and they've never been saved since. But the work he's done with Alexa Bliss, and then especially since moving to Raw, has completely revitalized this character. And even if one day the fiend goes away, a Bray Wyatt split personality morphing type of person can always exist and you can always go back to The Fiend, just like Mick Foley could go back to Cactus Jack while simultaneously usually being Mankind. And then eventually he just morphed into like this amalgamation of Mankind, Cactus Jack and Mick Foley all as one person, right? Right. So I, I think The Fiend will always be a part of Bray Wyatt. And look, Vince, Vince McMahon, by all accounts, loves this guy and sees him as a bright future. And there's no question that Bray has an incredible mind for the business, even if people don't like him as a wrestler. He is the he is truly the heir apparent to The Undertaker, even if his character is not on the level as, of The Undertaker. So it would really hurt me as a wrestling fan to see them do a final farewell. And for The Fiend in particular, specifically The Fiend, not be the one to put over. Maybe you could go with the Strowman or someone else and at least someone else would get put over. But for me, it's The Fiend, it's Bray Wyatt, and I think that's the best way to do it. I got to say, when I first saw the announcement that it was going to be 30 years, my first reaction was, how the hell has it been five years since the 25th anniversary? I know. I, feel like, I felt like it's that crazy. was just yesterday when they did the Brothers of Destruction versus the, the Wyatt family. And uh, talk about a situation where The Undertaker should have should have put Bray Wyatt over. That was it. Yes. But, well, but, um, but uh yeah, I was like, holy crap, I can't believe it's been five years since that. So I, I guess. And by the way, wouldn't it be bad if like when they're doing all the fiend graphics and stuff, right? Maybe they start, maybe included in that are some clips of that. So yeah. Like that, a reminder that, of, a reminder of, hey, you had a chance to put me over once. Now you're going to. Right. That That's why I mean, we'll get into it next week of the Survivors preview. But if it was Bray, we'd have to figure you know, do you tease that at all or, or do you, you know, do, or do you not give it away? How does Bray in the subsequent weeks make sure he kind of explains why he did that? There, there, there's a, I think there's still a lot to do other than simply, you know, a you one could, act in the ring. You could even do it as part of his promo package, like when they're because they've been doing these 30 years of The Undertaker showing clips and stuff. You could almost have The Fiend interrupt the feed. Yeah. Have, you know, insert a couple clips in there and then you're like, oh, my God, they're going to have the Fiend come out because then you're teasing it for later in the show. Then Taker comes out. He gives this whole thing. Fiend shows up. So the point is, I just want I want more than Taker walking to the ring and, and literally giving a final farewell. I hope that it's one of those moments where 
Taker actually gets to say goodbye and not one of those moments where you have John Cena show up and then just beat the crap out of Elias and then walk away, right? Because what you kind of wanted when it, what you kind of want when these older guys show up these days is for someone to get put over. Like Triple H, it's okay for him to win a match here and there, but when he's in a feud with Ronda Rousey on, on, at a WrestleMania, you want Rousey's team to be the one who wins, not Triple H and Stephanie McMahon, right? So that's kind of what I would hope. I don't want Taker to be there and like, I don't even know, I can't even think of a, a someone, but Seamus to come out and say, Taker, your time's done, you know, it's, and then he gets choke slammed and then Taker walks off. He's like, oh, he got one more. He got one last choke slam, or he got one final tombstone pile driver. No, that's not how it should go. Your final farewell in wrestling, someone as old, you know, respectfully, as The Undertaker, you go out on your back. And I yeah. want to see The Undertaker go out on his back. That's what yeah. I want to say. I, I've, I have no doubt he will, especially, you know, the Roman stuff a couple of years ago at WrestleMania. I, I, I have no doubt that he will. They may have thought that he already did that, though. That's, that's my concern. Is, well, Taker already did that. So, we'll so he doesn't need, he already went out on his back. He lost two times at WrestleMania. So he doesn't need to lose again. You well, know? this isn't, this isn't WrestleMania though. So I'm just saying, I'm, I'm just, that's my concern about it. They've been doing so many things right that I, I'm hopeful that they're going to get this right. But my concern is they just feed him someone like, like I'm saying, like John Cena got fed alive. Or when the rock shows up and they just feed, um, who, who the rock? Oh, Eric, Baron, Baron Eric Corbin. Rowan. Eric Rowan. Or yeah, Corbin. Yeah. yeah, Eric Rowan. Yes, Eric Rowan at WrestleMania and then Baron Corbin on, on the SmackDown. They just throw someone in there to take the move and pop people. I don't want that. I want the opposite. That's what I'm trying to get at. Yep. Anyway, we got a lot more to talk about on this show. We'll continue on with the main event. Talking about the guy who may actually be the heir apparent in terms of star value to The Undertaker, Roman Reigns, taking even more control over his career on Friday Night SmackDown. This whole thing, the multiple segments on SmackDown, for me was just next level stuff. The coffee interaction with Jey Uso and Kevin Owens, Owens taking his normal pot shots, uh, leading into the interview with Kayla, where Jay said Daniel Bryan had to be a victim because he's a friend and he's not blood. Kayla shading him the entire time. Paul Heyman walking in at the end and basically criticizing Jay for even doing the interview. Jay getting frustrated because now he has to run everything by Heyman and by Roman Reigns. Then you have Reigns come out of the locker room, criticize Jay for doing the interview and for allowing himself to be disrespected by Owens. And you can see it slowly happening over the course of this episode that Roman Reigns is basically emotionally manipulating while simultaneously brainwashing Jay Uso and convincing him to take care of Owens. Then he gets uh, absolutely torn apart by, sorry, I'm saying Roman absolutely tears apart Heyman for not taking care of things so Reigns doesn't have to. That's something that we've talked about previously on this show, how Heyman's role is different with Reigns than it is with Lesnar. For me, those two segments were such great, incredible character and storyline development, not just for Reigns, but for all three guys. You saw Jay's spirit being crushed, Reigns becoming more diabolical, and Heyman playing a perfect role, not as a confident advocate like he is with Lesnar, but instead almost a subservient tool for Reigns to use for further destruction. Yeah, you know what, what Roman is, is he's kind of a better cult leader here than Seth Rollins was as the yeah. Monday Night Messiah. Now, like, I don't know if he's the Friday Night Messiah or what, but like 
This is just the real, Messiah. This is really, really intricate stuff. Have did you watch uh, the Vow on HBO? I have not. No. It, it, it's a it's a story about a kind of a a cult thing that people didn't really feel like it was a cult, but it's called false sex cult stuff. It it's more really, of a it's more it, of a documentary. Yeah, a, yeah, it's a documentary. Yeah. It, it gets really weird, but a huge part of it is the way that the main guy emotionally manipulates these people and makes them feel uh, trapped, like they can't leave. And that's kind of like on a very low level. That's the kind of sense I'm getting from Roman through this stuff, the way he's, uh, you know, like, why is why does Jane not just leave? You know, theoretically, he could just leave, but he's but he's not. And the the way Roman is, again, just manipulating him into feeling like this is the way he should do it. And Jay's eventually buying in. This is just really, really good stuff. And every week there's like another little piece of it that they they that they throw in there and it's just really good and and i i liked the idea that's all of a sudden now everything has to go through roman now when he wants to do stuff so roman's almost kind of changing the rules as it goes along just just really really kind of makes you think and really just mentally stimulating stuff that that is not even in the ring wrestling like this is you don't typically get this kind of stuff from a pro wrestling storyline it's just it's been really good it's really good, and it's it's on par for me with what we're seeing over in AEW with Kenny Omega and Hangman Page and the Young Bucks, the elite storyline, basically, with Page's drunken depression and how that's affecting it. And, and it's not just, hey, they're going to beat you over the head with it three or four times on TV. It's taking little parts from months earlier or weeks before and kind of threading the needle to kind of tell this intricate tale like what you're talking about. So... It's just great stuff. And, and we saw the second half of it later in the show where Jey Uso beat Kevin Owens in a singles match. And Owens, before that began, he cut a strong promo tearing down Jay for not being his own man before the match. Reigns watched from backstage. Heyman came out after a few minutes and you could see Jay pick up the intensity just from Heyman being there. Owens hit a cannonball and a senton for a 2.5 count. Jay leapfrogged a pop-up powerbomb and then Owens hit one on him, but Jay got his foot on the rope. At that moment, Rain's music hits, distracting everyone. Jane then uses the top of his head to low blow Owens, which again is a nice piece of storytelling mm -hmm. because you're going back to Roman Reigns using his arm to low blow people on kickouts. Jay is now finding a unique way to do it rather than the typical low blow that you do, you know, without with the referee's head turned. So he hits the low blow with the crown of his head, then a super kick and the Uso, Uso splash and he beats Kevin Owens. So I mean, you saw the manipulation on full display here because he came out after the win and he just he didn't say a word to Jay. He just silently nodded and praised him. And you can see Jay almost stand up straighter when he did that. You can see the manipulation finalizing as SmackDown went off the air. And I thought it was a really powerful storytelling moment. It's just some of the best stuff that we've had in wrestling. And, you know, our year end awards are coming up next month. And, you know, we, we're, I have to figure out all the categories, but one of them is going to be storyline of the year. And we had Sasha Banks and Bailey, and we have the stuff in AEW, you know, like I'm talking about. There's some decent stuff storyline-wise in NXT happening. Drew McIntyre winning the title and his entire journey all the way starting, you know, even before the Royal Rumble when he turned face. But I'm going to be hard-pressed to not say the Roman Reigns storyline is not the number one of the year. It's only going to be a couple months and it's going to have to do a lot of work over the final four or five weeks before we vote to really kind of earn that 
but I've never seen anything like this. I can't remember ever seeing a wrestling storyline this emotional and this truly well thought out in all the individual little phases than what's happening with Roman Reigns right now. And it's great because this guy, more than anyone, needed something like this to take his career into the next level. I think WWE is finally, at the end of 2020, developing the star in Roman Reigns that they always could have had if they treated him with this type of care earlier in his career. Yeah, it, we haven't had a a wrestling story that where, where the mental side is this important mm-hmm. in, in quite a long time. So, uh, yeah, credit to again as as I say every week, credit to everybody involved in this because they are all carrying their carrying their weight. And I just every week, I can't wait to see what happens next. All right, we're going to stick with SmackDown for the third part of our four-part main event here. We had a SmackDown Women's Championship match, Sasha Banks defending her title against Bayley. You know, it opened the show, and I wasn't exactly sure why they had the SmackDown Women's title match and one of the company's biggest storylines of the entire year open the show, unless it was possibly due to election coverage. And And they were worried about ratings. Ultimately, and this is a, not, not really a spoiler, but I'm just going to talk about ratings briefly because you guys know I really don't care about them. This show did phenomenal in the ratings. I think it got a 2.3 over a 2.3 where SmackDown was hinging on like the 2, 2.1 category for a while. So whatever they did on this SmackDown and maybe putting this match first was a large part of it. It totally worked. They got one of their biggest ratings in a long time. So they open up. And they give us the video package and Bailey's promo, and they both set a really nice stage for the match. Just like I criticized last week, I'm going to stick with the criticism. They were way too vague about the storyline concept of Banks never successfully defending a title instead of just laying out the facts. She's won the title five times. She's never successfully defended it, and she's never had a title reign longer than 27 days. Saying those things before the match begins gives you greater incentive to want to see her ultimately win rather than just vaguely saying, Sasha, you've never defended the title. Because if you're a fan or if you're a casual fan, you're like, what? That doesn't sound right. How could Sasha Banks have never defended the title? I would have loved to have seen a promo package of every single time she won the title and then lost the title a couple days later. That is the type of build that I expected them to give us in her first title defense knowing it was going to get be against Bailey. Okay, let me get off of that. Uh, Banks hit Bailey with a Meteora on the ring post. Then when she tried another one, Bailey booted her into midair with a pump kick. That was a pretty cool spot. Banks hit a ridiculous crossbody off the ring apron before eating a hurricanrana into the announce table. She came back, running up the steel steps and hit an elbow drop on the ring apron, and then hitting the frog splash for Eddie Guerrero for a two count. There was a backstabber and Bailey to belly that were both countered then Bailey got the upper hand by distracting the referee, introducing the chair again, and hitting Banks with a backstabber and a Bailey to belly, plus an elbow drop for a couple of 2.5 counts in there. Still didn't get the job done. Bailey got frustrated. She tried to lock in the bank statement, but then made a mistake and charged into the post. Banks then hit the backstabber and bank statement of her own, locking the arm between her legs for the submission win and first retention of a singles title in her WWE main roster career. So my final thoughts on this are, don't get me wrong. You know, I want to be clear. This was a really good match 
pay-per-view quality match on television. More better than a four-star match, probably 4.25, 4.5. WWE also did us a favor here and gave us 20 minutes, including the commercials. But it felt really anticlimactic for this to be the opening match of a regular SmackDown and not have commentary treat it like it was a big deal. The crowd noise during the match didn't ebb and flow with momentum. There was no chanting. It just felt to me like a strange, very soft ending to what was the hottest feud the company had for multiple months, especially when at the end, you have Banks overcoming the adversity of never having successfully defended the title. So they had a storyline they didn't hit, and they took a storyline that they'd been running for multiple months. And even though the match was great, it ended for me kind of meekly. And I think they didn't do them justice by the placement of this and the way that they presented it from a, a sound and commentary standpoint. They didn't tell us it was as big of a deal as it actually was. Yeah, it's not. I think Sasha and Bailey did everything they could these last few uh, weeks with this feud. But once the draft happened, it became pretty clear that they wanted to wrap this story up and they didn't want to pause it and push it back to WrestleMania or something like we had all hoped. And so, yeah, it, it kind of felt like a rush finish. Yeah, and as it relates to opening the show, I, I don't know if, again, we don't know for sure, but maybe they just wanted to beat election coverage because, you know, for for a while there, we thought it could be called at any minute and people were glued to cable news. Maybe they just wanted to start with a bang and get it in just in case something happened. And I mean, based again, based, I'm not super into the ratings either, but based on what you said, may have been a good play in terms of, of that. But uh, yeah, it was... Um, it was a really, really good feud that maybe deserved a little bit better of an ending, but I think in the end they accomplished what they wanted, and it was. I'm ready for these two to to move on to other things, and um, yeah, yeah, so, yeah. It was kind of a yeah, kind of an abrupt ending, but it was pretty clear a couple of weeks ago that they wanted to wrap this up. It just feels like, and look, I'm not saying that this storyline needed to go like Seth Rollins Rey Mysterio direction, so don't get me wrong. <laughs> But but if you're going to spend that much time setting something up, you have to spend the requisite time to finish it, right? So they gave us a great match at Hell in a Cell, but that felt like it should have been the finale. That maybe should have been the rematch, and you have Sasha take the title off of her at the pay-per-view prior. They extended things so much by putting both of them on Raw, having all those matches with Asuka, having Banks win the Raw Women's Championship. They just extended it so far out that they got to a point where it was like, we don't really have any more story to tell other than have them lose the titles, have ba uh, Bailey not so much turn, but turn on, on Banks. She was already heel. It, it's, almost, it's almost like, where else were they going to go? But it's just disappointing to have it end on a Friday Night SmackDown opening match right in the middle of the election where you could have probably had it end at the Royal Rumble, or you could have had it end at another pay-per-view and just waited a couple more weeks and had, maybe for the women, they don't go champion versus champion, and the women actually have title matches, and you have Sasha Banks versus Bayley for a second time at Survivor Series. So, like, I, I think of, like, coming out of Hell in a Cell, you, you couldn't end it at Survivor Series, so the only way it was going to end was another 
essentially two months. And and maybe they felt they couldn't yeah. pull they maybe they felt they couldn't stretch it any farther. And that's why they went with what they did, which I, I get, but at the same time, yeah, it, it was it was not it didn't end with a bang. And and frankly, you you said it. There there were little things they could have done to make this ending feel better. Promo better promo packages emphasizing why Sasha Banks, like you said, ha, ha, can't hold out to a title for more than 27 days. Right. Put it in the and, main event. Yeah, and, you know? and, and really sell it. I mean, even if it opens the show, I mean, just start the show with no, building it but up. My, but my point is like, so last week was they challenged for the rematch, right? And Graves undersold it and I criticized him for it. But on this SmackDown, you could have sold it within the two hour time frame. You could have said, this is going to be our main event. It's an epic match. Sasha Banks never successfully defended. Is it going to happen again? And then over the course of the show, you could show one minute vignettes or, or 30 second video packages is really what I meant to say, not vignettes, uh, 30 second to one minute video packages of her winning singles titles and not defending singles titles. These are the five times it happened. And you start building this anticipation that, oh my God, it's going to happen again. And then in the match, you have Corey Graves and Michael Cole at a near fall Oh my God, here it is. Bailey hits the Bailey to belly. It's happening again. Banks not going to retain the title. One, two. Oh, wow. She kicked out. Like you build the anticipation for the final moment where she gets the fall, in this case, a submission and retains the title. It, it's not changing any of the storyline. It's not changing any of the timeline. It's just the presentation and the delivery. And look, WWE has been way better during this pandemic, right? We have rightfully praised them for telling stories better with more intricate details and thinking things through in a longer term scenario. This being one of them, they clearly knew the direction they were going, but it's just like you have that moment in the bottom of the ninth, right? And you want, to, they're, they're going to win the game. Banks is going to win the game in the bottom of the ninth. And instead of hitting, being because it's kayfabe and you can book whatever the hell you want to happen. Instead of hitting, having them do a bases loaded grand slam or a solo homer with, you know, two down and two outs, or, or, or a full count and two outs, I mean. Rather than do that, you have her like bunt to the pitcher and the pitcher bobbles the ball. And I don't even mean it that way because the match was great, right? And it was still done well. But you, it's, it's fake. Wrestling is fake, okay? You can have them do whatever you want. So if given the opportunity in, in a singular show, why not make it as grand as you possibly can be? That's sure. where I feel like they missed this. I just wonder if the election had been called on Tuesday night or Wednesday or Thursday, if it would have been the main event. We don't know for sure. It may have been the main but, event, but, but I don't think that, but I don't think they would have given the video packages I'm talking about. That, I mean, that's all again. Well, these are all hypotheticals, but I, I I definitely agree that that's possible too. Yeah, I'm just saying that even if the election didn't factor in, or like in a in a in a scenario where the election doesn't factor in, I don't know that they would have treated this any better. And to me, it's just disappointing because again, it's not just because it's a storyline. It's the storyline. It's the one we've been waiting for with these two. The matches were great. Most of the storyline leading up to it was great. But I want the finish to be 10 out of 10. Just like, yep. by the way, this is not very different from Becky Lynch winning at WrestleMania. A lot of that was really good. There were moments that weren't, but a lot of it was really good. But what happened? The match went on. It started at like 12 a.m. at mid after midnight. It was kind of sloppy parts of it. And the finish was botched. So it's like the whole thing was great. But if I'm not going to hit a home run in the on the final pitch, then what's the point of the entire thing? So, look, I, I'm a perfectionist. You guys know, listening to me when I talk about wrestling, 
I love these two. I love Sasha Banks, Bailey. You guys, I think Sasha Banks has a case to be the greatest women's wrestler in the world right now. I want to see her get that 10 out of 10 moment. So that's the criticism and I'm going to stick to it. Don't even argue with me. Don't bother because I'm not going to change. It seems like, by the way, as I said, one of the reasons they rushed this rematch and you mentioned it as well, they wanted to move on so Banks could begin a new program, get away from Bailey. But the SmackDown women's division is so small and Bailey's still on the show. So they didn't chain, take her off the brand where now Banks has this new life. Bailey's still going to be there. I don't know what she's going to do. Maybe she'll take some time off. I don't really know. But obviously, they introduced a new challenger right off the bat as Carmella came out and super kicked Banks from behind and hit her with the X factor before standing tall on the ramp. Carmella's new look was... Uh, a little strange, to say the <laughs> least, because she was wearing red leather, like lingerie style, like garter belt style ring gear. I like the fact that she was repackaged, but I'm not sure that I actually like the packaging. Does that make sense? Well, I mean, my first reaction was, what is the repackaging? I mean, it's just a different look, but she's acting like like old Carmella used to. So yeah. I, I don't, I don't, I mean the look, like you said, the look definitely stood out. Yes. Uh, but outside of that, nothing about this feels any different. It almost feels like they're giving her the Eva Marie gimmick that never happened. <laughs> like she's all red, everything. She's basically I, wearing all red. That was, a, red- I, I guess that was a fun gimmick for a short period of time where even we got the the long entrance and the announcement and all that kind of stuff. Uh, so I, I who know, I, I don't know where, if, I don't know if it's going to go down that road, but uh, yeah, I just, my, my, my takeaway from this was, all right, this is kind of typical wrestling. Somebody beats up somebody else and then they're just in the feud for no reason. I mean, maybe next week we get some explanation from Carmella and it sounds different but so far, it just feels like kind of by the books pro wrestling. Yeah, I mean, I don't actually mind what happened. The action was fine. And I don't mind Carmella coming back and being the top challenger. Because look, she is a multi-time SmackDown Women's Champion. And she has improved, by the way. I've said this many times, massively in the ring from what she was like two years ago. But I'm just talking about the packaging more than anything. Like seeing someone in red leather lingerie as, a, as ring gear in 2020... It's just like, eh, I don't know. I feel like you could have done it a little bit better. I'm not saying that I personally have any issue with it. I mean, look, I, I liked what I saw, but I also don't necessarily expect WWE to be giving us that Friday night on network television. That's the most action I've had all year. You know what I mean? So anyway, we'll move on to the fourth part of our main event. We'll go over to Raw finally and talk this long storyline that ended in a six-man tag team match, Drew McIntyre in the New Day against Randy Orton. Miz and Morrison. I didn't find that there was too much to break down about the opening segment, but I did like Orton's promo on Miz and Morrison. And it's good to see the Money in the Bank briefcase holder actually interacting with and causing havoc for the champion. They have good reason for making this a six-man tag, which, you know, we've seen so many six-man tag team matches in WWE, but they've really stopped doing them recently. So I appreciate that. And for this one, they actually gave us a reason for it happening, not just in that opening segment where Miz explained to Orton why he scheduled it, but really throughout the rest of the entire show, including with New Day coming to ringside in that moment. By the time we got to the main event, 
they didn't leave much time for the match. And normally I'd complain about that, except the reason we didn't get much time for this is because we got a banger with Ricochet and Mustafa Ali that we'll talk about a little bit later. So they didn't leave much time for this. The action was okay for the most part, but the ending was great. McIntyre hit a double suplex on Miz and Morrison and a future shock DDT on Morrison as Orton watched on. Then rather than hit the Claymore, he dragged Morrison to the corner and dared Orton to tag himself in. Orton refused and left. Morrison then took like this ridiculous corkscrew over the top rope to take out New Day, but McIntyre caught him back in the ring with the Glasgow kiss and the Claymore for the win. I thought it was a really strong look for McIntyre, and I'm definitely excited for what we now have as a title match, Randy Orton versus Drew McIntyre next week on Raw. But for this being the main storyline on the entire show, it just didn't really feel like it was. It almost felt like they punted a little bit. Yeah, it, it didn't feel like Raw had anything that was like an A segment, an A storyline going on. But I will say, and it started with that Orton promo, we were kind of getting what I wanted, what, what I said last week, which is Randy's getting paranoid. And and, and he was paranoid about uh, Miz being involved in this thing. And then it turns out his paranoia is correct because Adam Pearson announced to him that he's going to have a title match next week. And so... Uh, I, I, I don't know. I guess I don't know how long it's going to last, but this is exactly what I wanted to see from Orton because back back in like 2013 ish when he was with the authority and, and Randy was getting really paranoid about uh, about his title and, and, and the situations he was being put in. Uh, that's exactly what's happening here again. And he plays that role really well. And I know he's been kind of like a killer all throughout this year, but. Paranoid Randy Orton is is really an underrated character for him, and we we got that this week, and I liked it. Um, so we'll see. And then, you know, I guess we there's not much to say about the match and everything that happened, but I guess you know we talk about the championship match scheduled for next week, and it immediately brings to mind a handful of Survivor Series a couple of years ago when when Jinder Mahal lost the title right before Survivor Series, and when yep. uh, Daniel Bryan beat AJ for the title of uh, the year after that or something like that. So this would not be the first time we saw a title change right before Survivor Series because they wanted a different champion versus champion match. Yeah, Daniel Bryan turned heel in that moment. Yeah. Um, So yeah, that is the question, what you brought up. What happens next week? And it's interesting because we'll talk about it later. I'm trying to figure out how to fit this into this segment. We'll talk about a little bit later the... Drew McIntyre Sheamus segment. But during the Drew McIntyre Sheamus segment, in the background was the Firefly Funhouse uh, buzzard, the little puppet. So they're stalking McIntyre. I didn't see any during the opening segment when Randy Orton was talking, but you have the fiend lording over this entire situation. So you wonder, by the time you get to this title match next week, do they have the fiend get involved? Maybe Orton and Drew over the course of the show, turn this into a no disqualification match, or maybe during the match, the referee gets knocked out or something like that. The Fiend pops in and costs Randy Orton the title. And I wonder if they do that for a couple of reasons. Number one, Orton winning the title and beating McIntyre was more important. The moment was more important than Orton actually being champion. I don't really need Orton to be champion going into WrestleMania when he's clearly going to fight Edge. That's that's the plan 
right now for them to fight. Now, I, there's rumors, you know, that it's going to be a title match at WrestleMania. And by the way, I know this might be considered a spoiler, but no, number one, it's not confirmed. And number two, if you watch wrestling and have been following the entire year, I would hope that you would think that Orton Edge at WrestleMania would, would happen and that would make a lot of sense for you. Yeah. So Orton doesn't need the title and should not have the title for that match. So then you say, well, okay, but you had him beat McIntyre. So he got the win he needed to continue establishing himself as a top heel, but you want him to lose the title. How do you take the title off of him? You utilize the Fiend. And what you do is you have the Fiend interfere somehow, cost Orton the title, because really the Fiend doesn't have an issue with Drew McIntyre. The Fiend has an issue with Randy Orton. So you have the Fiend, you know, win this or, or, or interfere in this situation. McIntyre wins the title. We get the main event upon all main events at Survivor Series, Roman Reigns versus Drew McIntyre, heel Roman Reigns against face Drew McIntyre, which is the opposite of what we thought it might be about a year ago. And you have Randy Orton start a program with The Fiend where maybe, yeah, The Fiend actually gets over Orton. It's the one person who gets over Orton. And then you give Orton a couple months to build back into the guy he has been to go after Edge at WrestleMania. So I don't, no, like, I don't want to come here and say, yes, the, the title is definitely changing hands on Monday night. But if I had to put money on it, I would probably put a title change at like minus 130 and a title retention at like plus 150 for Randy Orton if I was setting odds. I think it's more likely than not we get a title change on Raw. I, I do too. I, don't, I mean, I don't even think, I don't think you schedule this match out of nowhere to not do it based on what we've seen in previous years with Survivor Series. It always seemed weird to do heel Randy Orton and heel Roman Reigns. We knew that. Uh, so I would I would be surprised if we don't see a title change. Uh, another thing, another little thing, I've, I've praised um, Adam Pearce a few times as like the down-the-middle authority-adjacent type of role. And I like the way when he informs Randy Orton of the title match and Randy gets pissed and puts him up against the wall, that he, you know, he doesn't like cower. Right. He like he accepts it. He's like, I know you're mad. It's okay to be mad. I'm just going to sit here and take it. But I'm also not going to like totally back down either. I, it was like a little piece of a character there that I think was important to keep up his legitimacy in this role. So it, it was just a little thing, but I, I thought he did a good job uh, in that moment. It's so refreshing for WWE to be giving us an authority figure who has authority but he's not the authority. Yeah. And actually, because because it's been a missing storytelling device that things just happened for months. Like, I, we let's fight. And then Michael Cole's like, okay, that match is on. It's like, who put you in charge? And they, don't, they didn't even say, I just heard from Stephanie McMahon that he's, because at least on AEW, they do that. And NXT as well, actually. So, you know, on AEW, they say Tony Khan has made this match official. On NXT, they either say William Regal's made the match official or William Regal comes out and makes the match official, right? So mm -hmm. having that on the main roster when you have five hours of television, not having it was a major hole. And it just, things didn't really make sense how they would suddenly happen out of nowhere. Now you at least know that even in scenarios where there's a challenge made like Bobby Lashley, for example, that situation, where a challenge is made from Titus, and Bobby's like, okay, let's go. Even though they didn't spell out for you, Adam Pierce just said, okay, that match is on. You know he's back there. And in kayfabe to yourself, you can say, oh, okay, Pierce must have said that was okay. So, you know, just having that little additional piece 
really works. And for me, it's always great to see another Adam on wrestling television. So I always love that. <laughs> so that's the main event, four-part main event. Let's talk about everything else that happened on Raw and SmackDown. We, and we do still have a ways to go here. We're going to do a big segment right now on the Build to Survivor Series and all the qualifying matches and the ins and the outs that we got over Raw and SmackDown. So let's start with the Raw men's team. We opened the show relatively early on with Matt Riddle, Riddle, sorry, defeating Elias and Jeff Hardy in a triple threat match, last chance match, to get the final spot on the team. I thought Hardy had made Elias look pretty decent in their singles feud. But in the triple threat, he really slowed this entire thing down. Elias reversed the twist of fate into Driftaway. That was a cool spot. Riddle broke it up with a senton and a fisherman's buster. Elias broke up a twist of fate. And Riddle caught Elias in the air with Bro Derek for a win, which was a really good finish to that match. Elias was trying to jump over him, leapfrog him uh, as he was running into the corner. And Riddle caught him right there and, and hit the Bro Derek. It was really cool. It was a really sloppy match. I wasn't a fan of the match itself, but putting Riddle on the Survivor Series team over Elias and Jeff Hardy, neither of whom needed it. For me, Chris, that was 100% the right call. Yeah, I mean, given who was involved, yeah, probably. I'm just, I was not really, I'm not really into any of these guys. And and I just, I've not really connected with Riddle since he moved up, you know. And, and mm-hmm. it's also, why is his name Riddle? It's so stupid. I mean, it's, to, to, I will be fair. It's his real name. And not, yeah. only is it, not only is it his real name, it's what people call him. Like, if you're referring to him, you refer to him as Riddle. Yeah, so, no, no, like, it's fine on second reference to call him that. I'm, I'm not I saying know. every time he does a move, Matt Riddle does this, Matt Riddle does that. But when you say, and your winner, Riddle, and it's like, that just sounds stupid. I'm not defending it, because <laughs> I, I rail on WWE cutting people's names off just as much, if not more, than anyone. So I'm not defending it. What I, the only thing I'm going to say here is, there's certain people who it's worked for. Rusev, it was a good decision. Cesaro, it was a good decision. I like, don't think I don't think it's a good decision for Riddle because we know the word Riddle has other connotations. Okay, so because yeah. of that, them doing it for this particular name doesn't work. But if that wasn't the case, and Riddle was just his last name, I wouldn't really mind it in this scenario because even when people talk to him backstage, like if if AJ Styles was finding him backstage, he wouldn't be saying, hey, Matt, Matt. He'd be saying Riddle. No, right, right. Whereas someone like Keith Lee, they're not going to say, hey, Lee. They're going to say Keith. Now, I don't want them just calling Keith Lee Keith. But but my point is, that is what he actually goes by. So it's I don't like it. It's unnecessary. That's the worst part of these is that it's unnecessary. But I'm okay with it. I'm not going to... There's some that I went crazy about, Mustafa Ali, Apollo Crews. I'm not going to go crazy about this. It's, it's just, it's, it's just, it's part of the larger issue with WWE and where like people don't always sound like normal people. Like when they'll say, right. Like when they'll say the horror show at extreme rules in a promo, it's like, that's not what people, that's not how you would say it. Like in, in for the most part, calling him real most of the time is fine. I think it's just in certain official situations. I understand. Introduced. Again, it's a little thing. We don't need to get into the whole thing. I was not, I didn't really care for this segment. I don't really care for any of these guys involved right now. Did you, did you ever play, did you ever play or were you a big fan of Street Fighter? Uh, No, I was not much of, uh, that was mostly on Sega Genesis, right? I I was not a Genesis guy. I mean, no, it was on, it was really on everything, but. I did not do much Street Fighter, no. 
Okay, so I was a Street Fighter fan over a Mortal Kombat combat fan, and anyone, by the way, who disagrees with that, go to hell. I did, I did, we, did, we did some Mortal Kombat. More Street Fighter was by far the superior game. But the big boss on Street Fighter, his name was M. Bison, right? Not a first name, just M. Period Bison. And Riddle on his ring gear, all of his ring gear says M. Period Riddle. <laughs> and I don't, I'm not saying I would go with that name, but... I kind of like it as a display name. Like if you want to call him Riddle, have it say M Riddle, but just call him Riddle. And I just, I hearken back to that. Every time I see his, uh, his warm up that he rings, uh, wears to the ring, like that jacket that he wears, it says M Riddle. Like it's almost like he's an athlete. I would kind of go in that direction with a little bit more than just Riddle. But ultimately, like I'm going to give him a break on Riddle. We'll, we'll see what happens. So far, you're right that he has not been built as well as he should be and, and treated well enough for that you, someone who maybe not was not a fan of his prior, is suddenly becoming a fan of his. But I did think that what happened later, AJ Styles calling a team meeting, what Riddle did during that, I think is starting to show the personality that is his real personality and that they're going to go with for the character. So you had AJ Styles call a team meeting. And even though I guess Styles still, some reason, isn't officially the captain, I'm enjoying him in this role with the other heels just refusing to buy into it. It's especially good because this team is loaded with exceptionally strong guys and big personalities. So I like the team and I even like the segment, even though it dragged a little bit and got somewhat stupid at the end, they all started liking each other. And then right at that moment, Styles decides to have him fight. So it made no sense. Like right as they're finally coming together, Styles is like, all right, I'm not captain. You guys are going to fight each other. Storyline-wise, that made no sense. And I'm starting to wonder, and tell me if I'm wrong, if they're almost trying to have AJ Styles be like a Michael Scott type of <laughs> captain where he's well-intentioned, but nothing he does goes right. Yeah, I, I mean, kind of. It, it, it is kind of a slapstick thing thrown together like a bumbling captain yeah almost. yeah it's it's kind of there okay well we got matt riddle and keith lee defeating sheamus and braun Strowman in that tag team match styles accidentally got hit twice by riddle then squashed between lee and Strowman. after the commercial break lee threw sheamus into Strowman, which was really cool and then power bombed riddle into sheamus as an offensive move planned offensive move by the way you probably don't know this but riddle and keith lee used to be a tag team called the Limitless Bros, and they work awesome together. So if they don't have much for them, I would love to see them do that, at least on Raw. Again, got to beef up the tag team division because there's really not much there. Uh, Lee got a near fall on Strowman, then ate a bro kick, fell out of the ring. Strowman and Sheamus were tagging each other in, trying to finish Riddle. So Sheamus just bro kicks Strowman. Riddle rolled up Sheamus for the win. I thought, despite the storyline maybe being a little bit clunky early, this is another. this was another really good match with all of these guys. The truth is, this team is absolutely stacked, and there is no way whatsoever that the Raw men's team should lose to the SmackDown team at Survivor Series. No, I mean, in a vacuum, the the, the story they did on Raw and, and this team, it was a lot of fun. It's still hard for me to get over what they're fighting for, why this matters. We went into a whole thing last week about the idea that the winner should get a kayfabe payout or get a 
opportunity for a title shot or something just so there are stakes. So that's the only thing that's been missing again is like, why does it, why does it matter who's captain to them? Why does it matter if they win or lose? But if you, if you're able to separate that, I did find it as, as an enjoyable kind of B storyline for the show. It was funny. It kind of did what it needed to do. The only, the only issue is it's, it's pretty clear that they're not doing raw SmackDown invasions. So the storyline they're doing pretty much everywhere is can they coexist, you know, even with the women four times. Yeah. They're just kind of telling the same story with, with everybody. So not to mention who cares about brand supremacy when almost the entire raw team was on SmackDown a month ago. Uh, so well, it, 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 so it's been, that part's been weird, but like just in the context of this show, that episode, I thought it was pretty funny and, and, you know, a good B storyline. Well, that's the bigger question. And that is something we're going to get to in a little bit. I have a DM slide with basically that topic. Before we get out of this raw men's situation, I did briefly mention earlier, McIntyre and Sheamus had that backstage moment. I got to say, I want to spend just a minute on this. I absolutely love this face heel friendship angle dynamic that they have with Drew McIntyre and Sheamus. Neither of them trying to change the other for good or bad, but McIntyre basically just looking out for his friend's well-being and his mental health, really. Like, he's basically telling Seamus, like, you're a good dude, but you really have anger problems, right? And just, you need to kind of handle those. It's not making Seamus a face. It's just saying, like, look, dude, we can coexist despite us being on different sides of the coin here. But, you know, you don't need to be an ass all the time, right? So it just seems, it seems to me like they're building to a tag team. Now, that is what only happened if McIntyre loses the WWE title. So I do think that this match they're going to have between Randy Orton and Drew McIntyre is going to have a lot of tentacles storyline-wise on what happens going forward. I think it's going to affect what happens with Sheamus, and I think it's going to affect what happens, obviously, with The Fiend. I would love to see these two as a tag team. Again, Raw Tag Team Division needs to get beefed up. Could you imagine three months from now getting McIntyre and Sheamus as champions defending against Matt Riddle and Keith Lee? It would be an incredible match. So there's so many dudes on this brand. I want to see them start to get creative and put all these little pieces and things together. But just having McIntyre and Sheamus be friends backstage, despite being completely different, I saw someone say they thought it was kind of a political thing, you know, having to do with like Democrats and Republicans, how they all hate each other and they can't get along. But if you break it all down, they're really the same type of people. I think you're taking it a little bit too far. This has been a storyline for a couple of weeks already. I don't think it's directly related to the election, but it is interesting to me that it's somewhat of a microcosm about what's happening. It's like, look, you can get along with people, even if you disagree on some pretty big things. And what McIntyre and Sheamus are doing for me, it's one of the most almost unique things that WWE has done since the draft. It's the kind of thing I want all the time. I want acknowledgement. Right. I, I want wrestlers in storylines to acknowledge wrestlers in other storylines. And especially if they have a history with each other, just make it feel like a living, breathing universe where everything's interconnected. Right. Um, I, I think AEW does a pretty good job of that where just people are in and out interacting with each other all the time. Yeah. Give give me more of Seamus and McIntyre and, and, and you know, about their history and coming over to the U S and hell bring Wade Barrett over at some point, if you want to uh, really tie it all together. So uh, 
he's in town. I mean, he's yeah. working on uh, NXT. Right. That's, so. right. That's what I'm saying. So, <laughs> so he's there. Uh, yeah. So yeah. I mean, I, I don't know if it leads to something down the road, especially if we both think McIntyre is about to win the WWE Championship. But just it's it's, it's just a little thing that adds so much to these characters when you. It, it makes you feel like these are real people and just the little things like that go a long way. Now over on the SmackDown side for the men's qualifying, at least on Friday, it very much revolved around and was threaded within the Seth Rollins, Rey Mysterio storyline. And that was actually okay because it took two things and kind of combined them into one. So I did like that. The first match we got was Baron Corbin defeating Rey Mysterio to make it onto the Survivor Series team. Rey was, you saw him backstage beforehand trying to reach his daughter when Corbin tacked him from behind. Uh, Mysterio had to wrestle without his gear because he wasn't able to get ready. And Rollins interrupted to watch the match. Dominic looked like he was watching a tennis match. He was standing between both guys with his head volleying back and forth between the two. It was really funny watching Ray get his ass kicked and Rollins watching uh, the match happen. Corbin attacked Dominic outside. And just as Ray uh, hit the 619, Rollins attempted uh, to distract him by attacking Dominic. Murphy and Aaliyah ran down with Aaliyah all dressed up in a full like dress, not just like looking good. Uh, Ray yelled at them and Corbin caught Ray for the end of days when he got back into the ring for the win. This was good attention to detail, at least for me, to give Ray multiple excuses for the loss while putting Corbin over in the Survivor Series match, which candidly, Corbin does belong in the Survivor Series match. He's always been good in them, number one. He is a featured guy on SmackDown and he really doesn't have anything else to do, whereas Rey Mysterio does. I thought this was a really smart segment and we'll talk about the next stuff that happened, but this segment in particular, I thought was a really smart way to continue the storyline. It was. It felt like the first time in forever we saw Rey Mysterio fight somebody who was not involved in the Rollins storyline right. directly. Right. So I, I guess that was good. Um, not a huge step forward here in this storyline. I've gone back and forth on just wanting it to end, which is a large part of me. And then a little part of me wants it to just get as weird as possible. Uh, still kind of in that, still kind of in that mindset. Well, I thought the second half of the storyline, and I know we paused only there. I did think the second half did develop the storyline further because you had Seth Rollins defeat Otis in a smack in a SmackDown Survivor Series qualifying match before we even get to the, the Seth Rollins stuff, man. What a fall for Tucker and Otis. Like Tucker, we knew what was going to happen, right? He's done. He's done. His career's done. I, I hate it. I hate it because I like the guy. He seems pretty cool. He seems to have really good work on the promo. They had a really good tag team. It worked. Heavy machinery made sense. Tucker's done. Otis, it seems like he has a career in front of him as a hacksaw Jim Duggan type of character who can win certain situations, but at the same time loses more often than not and isn't going to be really in the title picture. But it's just kind of crazy to see that they split them up and this is the direction they've gone with both. And they're both basically just losing every week it, now. It's, it's terrible. It's ridiculous. Murphy, Murphy came down early during this match and Rollins had problems with Otis eventually. Rollins was able to win. Uh, Otis hit Rollins with a fallaway slam. He was about to hit the Caterpillar. When Murphy jumps on the ring apron as a distraction, Shocking Rollins. Rollins is able to knock down Otis and hit the stomp for the win. This was more good storytelling. Last week, I had theorized that Rollins was manipulating Murphy and Aaliyah. Now they're trying to make us think that it's Murphy who is actually manipulating Rollins into thinking that he's back to being a disciple 
almost as a way of fooling him to tear him down from the inside, possibly to win over Ray and Dominic. The great part of, of this entire thing is that it can really go either way. Murphy could be brainwashed again, and maybe he's going to take Aaliyah into it, or he is now outsmarting Rollins, and he's going to go against Rollins, and the way this thing is going to end is with Mur Murphy winning over the Mysterios and winning Aaliyah, and we get a Rollins-Murphy feud of some kind. That's not how I would book it. I think that's completely the wrong direction. I don't know why you would take Murphy and have him side with the Mysterios because that means Ray and Dominic never actually get over on Rollins. But at least it's intriguing and at least I don't know where it's going to go. So because of that, I give it a thumbs up. Yeah, I'm I'm kind of thumbs in the middle right now. We'll see. I... This is this is the part of me that comes out where I'm saying, why are we still doing this? Why did they need to get over on Rollins and Murphy when they've done it several times already, yet they're still going? So apparently they have to end on top. I don't know, man. I guess we'll see what I, we'll see what happens next week and where it goes from there. That's that's all I can really say. It, it's 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 just it's been a lot. It has been a lot. That's totally fair. Uh, SmackDown women's qualifying for the Survivor Series. Ruby Riot defeated Natalia and Zelina Vega. In a triple threat match, they swerved me here because Natalia was the only person who got their entrance music played. So I'm like, of course, they're just Ruby's done. They're just going to have Natalia win. Like, this is a joke. But Riot looked great. She had new short hair. It's weird that Natalia got a second chance to qualify before others even got a first. The booking here was strong and pretty smart, actually, with Vega not submitting to the sharpshooter, but quickly tapping to the crossface. They put over Riot without Natalia suffering a loss while two submissions were just too much for Vega to overcome. So they booked it in a way that where all three women look strong, where the truth is they didn't need to make Zelina Vega look strong. And Natalia can always lose at any time and not really hurt her. But still, they figured out a way to make it work. Now you have Ruby Riot on the team. That's good. That's, that's a really positive thing for her career. I want to see her get featured more. She's a great wrestler. This worked. Yeah, no, it, it was a little weird. Natalia kind of letting the sharpshooter go. But other than that, yeah, it was fine. It was good. Ruby looks good. It's good to see somebody new, not new, but, you know, kind of a, someone we didn't expect maybe getting put in this position. So, yeah, yeah. Good. it's classic bumbling Natalia, though, to do to do something that she shouldn't have done and then lose the match because of it. So right. because of that, it worked for me. Now, we do have a DM slide here from Daniel Greer at Daniel Greer, and he asked the question that you brought up a little bit earlier. He said the Survivor Series build has largely been boring. In our opinion, do we think WWE will add any stakes to these brand versus brand matches? I feel like they expect the fans to get excited because of the names of the wrestlers and not actually giving us a reason to care. So, no, I don't think they're going to add anything. And I do agree that it's been lazily built and kind of bland. We talked about the reasoning, though they screwed up the schedule with the TV, you know, debuts for Raw and SmackDown and then doing the draft afterward, changing people, and then going right into this without any good reason why. They didn't give us a reason why we're doing champion versus champion. They don't tell us, okay, they gave us a reason why Styles wants to be captain because he, he on his career resume, he wants winning Survivor Series captain to be there. But they don't give us a reason why any of these other guys want to be on the team or why anyone wants to fight Raw or wants to fight SmackDown. I guess they felt like they couldn't just do an invasion because they did that two years ago and they did it twice last year, once with NXT involving, uh, involving invading SmackDown, which they kind of needed to do by, by necessity due to the Saudi Arabia thing. 
And then they had SmackDown invade Raw. So I just guess they felt, hey, we can't just do an invasion every year. It's going to get lazy. My assumption is during the go-home week, we'll get the invasions. But they wanted to build things up before we got to that point. But I do agree. The people, so many of them not necessarily interacting together new, like Riddle and Sheamus, how many times have we seen them interact, right? If Mysterio or Dominic gets on the Survivor Series team, how many times have we seen them interact? Why should they be teaming up? There's still no reason given why they should be teaming up to go against Raw or SmackDown either way. So I think I mentioned it last week for the the title matches for the the world and and the mid card, the women, the tag team. Those naturally, it seems like have some you want to be the best of the best and you want to prove that you're the best one in your individual field at this big pay-per-view every year. But for the teams, they really should be putting kayfabe money or prestige. If there's a sole survivor, they get a title shot. There should be something on the line in these matches. Otherwise, you're right, Daniel. There's really no reason for us to care. Yeah, I. there should just be... It should, there should be the same stakes every year. Either the winning team gets a favorable spot in the Rumble or, or a title shot or something or just straight up a million-dollar payout, we tell them. And it's got to be the same every year. You can't do the invasion because, like I said, a lot of these Raw guys were just on SmackDown and it's, just, it's kind of – there's no connection. that You can't make the invasion – you could do an invasion as a go-home, but you can't do the invasion as the storyline as the as like the, the the way to hype this up because of what we just said. So yeah, there's you know the the stories are trying to tell with each team are okay. You know, it's pretty good on, on Raw, but in terms of why they're fighting each other, no, I'm still not I'm still not getting it. I have Adam you can't you can't go back and change it now. You can't really say, oh now the winner gets a million dollars or something like that. But it, it should be known heading into Survivor Series every year that there is something on the line and it's just, it's not. So it's just weird. You know, Survivor Series has now become, it's it's more about the champions versus champions than it is the actual Survivor Series match. So, right. I, Which, so, so I don't like, honestly, I don't even know if you necessarily need the Survivor Series match. You can just say the series is the series of champion versus champion matches. Uh, honestly. I like the elimination matches historically, but I also like the old WWE stuff. But you got it's in 2020. You got to give reasoning behind it. You, you do. Maybe every fall counts as a point, and then whatever team has the most points at the end, whatever brand at the end gets their own pay per view. Like, so, like the soul, the, the sole survivor or survivors, you know, they get a title match of their choosing or something like that. I don't, right. I don't know. But anything like you know, a couple of years ago, they counted the matches and every brand that every. The single match counted as a point for the brand. And then whatever brand winds up with the most points, like I said, give them their own pay-per-view. And mm-hmm. it gives like a, a a value. Hey, there's pay-per-view checks. And give us a kayfabe reasoning. You can make it up. Again, people just kind of forget in WWE in particular, your, your product is fake, right? It, it's predetermined. You can do whatever you want as long as it makes sense. So do those things. And I just feel like sometimes they get lazy on, on stuff where look, these matches are, are fine. The way they're booked, it's going to be a good show. The, the wrestling, I think, is going to be really good. But it's that extra element that we need. It's the storytelling. The storytelling's been actually a somewhat strong suit for WWE, especially over the last four months. But now we're entering a Survivor Series where we don't have it. It's that that element 
is seemingly missing throughout most of the matches. And, and that's the biggest problem. Now, I have one other larger thing to talk about here before we do a lightning round for the rest of the show. And that's, shockingly, Mustafa Ali defeating Ricochet in a singles match on Raw. Now, if you told me a couple months ago, we'd get what we got on Monday night, I would have called you a damn liar. But no, we got greatness Monday night on Raw. Earlier in the show, Ali and Reckoning, I can't believe I'm calling her that, uh, cut a promo saying they basically respect Ricochet, but will tear down anyone in their path. I like, by the way, that Reckoning is now the only women, woman in the group, in the faction, but she's getting a voice and not just in the background like all the other guys. They're making a concerted effort for Ali and Reckoning, Mia Yim, to be the people that are at the forefront of the group. And I like that it's one male and one female rather than it being Ali and T-Bar, for example, even though T-Bar has an intimidating voice, at least based on what we've heard. It's weird that Raw has not aired Ali's two best promos since joining Retribution, but at least we got this one in. Ali talking will only help Retribution. So the more of that, the better. As for the match, I thought we were going to get a 10-minute banger. It didn't start that way. And I actually got pretty depressed. I'm like, wow, they're going to give us seven minutes and this is maybe going to suck. But no, it didn't. These guys hit 100 miles an hour by the midway point in the match, and it was a burner all the way to the end. There were great moments. Ricochet hit a hurricanrana off the ring apron to the floor, and then a suplex into a deadlift brain buster. That was the spot of the entire night, any match on the three-hour show. Ali raked Ricochet's eyes and then hit an avalanche backstabber, which I don't think I've ever seen before, for a 2.5 man pound. okay i just gotta jump in pause that yeah, was take insane it. take it yeah that 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 uh backstabber off off the turn off the top rope oh man that could have been so bad in so many ways but you know these guys trust each other you know what they're doing and they keep each other safe but whoa man i saw that and i was like morning woods is what xavier calls it that's what i call it like morning <laughs> woods from that right there a ricochet came back hit a poison rana on ali and then a springboard Tornillo to take Retribution out outside. I haven't seen anyone do one that smoothly. I mean, Phoenix, I've seen do one before, but man, Ricochet is absolutely crazy the way he hit that move. He then came back, wasted too much time, missed a Phoenix splash on Ali, and then Ali tapped him out with the Koji clutch. This was fantastic. It went longer than I expected. We got more than I expected, and both guys came out of it looking great, even though Ali absolutely had to be the one to win to give Retribution some kind of boost. This was the absolute total surprise of the night and maybe the surprise for WWE over the four-day week. This is what they should be doing with these guys, this hand, these handful of guys every week. You know, when... Ricochet did that jumping out of the ring flip onto the ramp in NXT against Velveteen Dream. When I saw that moment, I was like, this guy has to be a star. He has to be a, a superhero, a Dragon Ball Z character, whatever. Because this guy can do so many physical things that so few other people have. Just let him do that every week and he will get over. And they, they don't. And this match against Ali. I don't want him to fight Ali seven times in a row like sometimes WWE does, but both of them, I mean, Ali and Ricochet have this 
physical ability that so few other people have, you need to highlight that as much as you can. That's the only way you're going to get these guys over, especially Ricochet if you don't trust him on the mic. So let Ricochet be Ricochet and do stuff like that, and it'll work. So, you know, the fact that they gave him so much time for this, I, I hope is a good sign for right. what they're going to do here, possibly moving forward. But uh, again, it's weird because sometimes they, they give retribution a, 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 a lot of focus and, and interest. And then the next week they're nothing and they're swept by her business and you don't think about them. So this swung back in the direction of giving you a reason to pay attention to retribution. So I guess we'll see what happens next week now. I, I talk about it all the time. One of the things NXT does great for its talent it accentuates the positives and tries to eliminate the negatives. That, that's the Paul, it, it's the Paul Heyman formula. That's what they, he always correct. does. That is, that is absolutely correct. They do it with Ember Moon now in NXT that they didn't do on the main roster. They tried her again when she came back talking on a live mic. Didn't work. She got nervous. Wasn't good. So what do they do now? They're doing pre-taped promos or pre-taped video packages with Ember Moon and then having her go in the ring and kick, kick major ass. They also do it with Io Shirai. Now that is a little bit more language barrier reason, but still Io Shirai comes off as a badass. Ricochet, when he has a live mic in his hand, even if there's not a crowd, he tends to get a little nervous and he, and he flubs a little bit and it doesn't really work. When he's in a pre-taped promo backstage, as with her business, as with Tucker two weeks ago, he comes across really well. Why? Because you can do multiple takes and you're not in front of a live crowd or a live audience where you need to worry about screwing up on the spot. It takes away the mental block. Then you have him go out in the ring and absolutely dominate just like he did here. So this is how you work with Ricochet. Okay, yes, maybe he's not perfect. Maybe he won't ever be world champion, but this is a guy who can be your IC or US champion and can be a fan favorite and can sell a ton of merch. The guy's 32 years old. He can wrestle. I don't know if he can do everything he's doing for another 10 years, but he can wrestle for another 10 years. This is someone you want to build around. He has a great name. He has a great gimmick work with him. Ali, great as well. This was, as I said, one of my biggest surprises. No, it was my biggest surprise on WWE television. Not that it was good. I knew it would be good if they gave him an opportunity. The fact that they gave them such an opportunity, put it in the co-main event wrestling spot and allowed it to go on 15 minutes. It was just a total pleasant surprise. And I love that they did it. So I hope they understand and hear the praise. If this was in front of a live crowd, it would have torn the damn house down. They would have gotten a standing ovation at the end of the match. That's not saying it was a five-star match. The impressiveness of the moves would have popped the crowd to such a degree. You would have got, this is awesome fight forever. You would have gotten all the chance. These guys need more TV time. I want them against other guys, their size. I want them against bigger guys. This was great. DM slide from dad Saber Jr. at underscore Black Saber Jr. Am I to learn that you're a father? Did you have a kid? That's great. Congratulations to our listener from the very beginning and one of my longest time listeners going back to the other show that I was on. He asks, am I oversimplifying it or would Retribution's presentation dramatically improve if they all lost the masks and manic behavior? It feels like a poor man's sanity, which wasn't good. I think there's some to that. I don't necessarily think they all have to lose the masks at the same time or immediately. I'll tell you what I would do. I would treat it, and Chris, you can understand this, like rookies in training camp. You have them wear the blank helmets, right? And then when they earn their spot on the team or they prove enough to their other um, the other players, the more veteran players, they get the stripe or the logo or whatever the case. 
I would be all, if I was Ali, I would say, I put you in the masks for all these reasons that he's laid out. And unfortunately they haven't aired those on television, but they've told it on social media. I would have him cut that same promo again and say, if you don't want to wear a mask anymore, then you need to start being a contributing member of retribution. You need to show success. You need to show me the reason why I recruited you. And you go out and you have T-Bar beat Shelton Benjamin or have him win again, you know, a title or, or whatever the case. And as these wins come along, one by one, they're allowed to un- take their masks off and reveal themselves. And maybe they even lose the names. And he, go, he takes the mask off. He's no longer T-Bar. He is now Dijak. And you go one by one all the way down the line. And that is how you transition retribution from being largely garbage to something resembling a decent faction. Yeah, no, I, I, I like that idea. You know, it, it gives... My biggest issue with retribution has been we don't know who these people are. We don't know why they're doing this. We got it with Mustafa Ali, but it's still hard to connect with what they're claiming is various slights and not having chances when we don't know who these people are. So if if you you can do that one by one, you know, someone earns the right to lose their mask and we find out who they are and why they're mad and, and there's your opportunity to give them a character. That's been the biggest issue is that now, you know, those first handful of weeks when it was just them talking, it was it was hard to just connect with them as characters. Mustafa Ali has er, Mustafa Ali has helped. Mustafa, Mustafa Ali has helped, and yeah, I, I like that idea. I, I think it'd be fine. I, again, it goes week to week in terms of how much we're supposed to care about retribution or not. And you keep telling me about these social media promos that Ali is cutting, and we're not getting on TV. So at it's least ridiculous. they gave him at least they gave him the opportunity. Uh, last night, but uh, yeah, I, I, I'm fine with that. Yeah, it's just so ridiculous that they're not these guys cutting incredible promos and they're just not putting them on television. It's it hurts me inside. Anyway, all right, now that we do have more stuff to talk about, let's go lightning round edition. We're going to kind of roll through these as quick as we can. We saw Nikki Cross confront Alexa Bliss backstage. Cross tried to talk some sense into Bliss and get her to walk away, but Bliss kept going on and on about the Firefly Funhouse and how fun it's been and that they should have a play date, which I thought was kind of a cute, fun way to do that. Cross made her choose between herself and The Fiend, and Bliss chose The Fiend, which you could see take the life out of Nikki Cross's face. I loved it. I thought it was a really good piece of acting, and it was a good way to infuse Bliss and The Funhouse and The Fiend into the show without actually showing them this week. It was nice to have a break from The Fiend and Bliss and The Funhouse, but they still kind of managed to keep the story going on. Yeah, no, it, it was, you know... I, the, the Nikki Cross stuff, Alexa Bliss is handling that well. Wasn't uh, we didn't get uh, a big step like we have in previous weeks, and that's fine. You don't need that every week, so um, yeah, it was fine. All right, we had Shayna Baszler defeat Lana. The montage, by the way, of Lana eating seven Samoan drops before the match it was amazing. It made <laughs> me laugh out loud. Uh, Baszler hit a gut wrench slam, knee strike, Karafuta clutch uh, for the win in about two minutes. Mandy Rose and Dana Brooke were on commentary during the match. They stopped Nia Jax from hitting another Samoan drop, which was probably supposed to be a babyface move. But for me, it was a total heel move because I'm thinking, why do they hate fun? Why are they going to make this stop happening again? So they told Lana later backstage that they did it to send a message to the tag team champions, but they still hated her for ruining their title opportunity last week. So it's an interesting angle that they're doing with Lana where... She's basically an outcast. The faces don't like her. The heels don't like her. 
Maybe she'll help Mandy and Dana win titles later and become a face. But I I know people dislike it. And we'll talk a little bit more about Lana momentarily. I like what they're doing with Lana. The Samoan drop stuff stuff is fun. And her getting tapped out by Baszler in two seconds or two minutes was fun as well. Yeah, I I thought it was. I mean, I guess I'll just kind of go into the Lana stuff with this. But but yeah, you know, when this started happening, you know, the meta part of you thinks, oh, are they punishing her because of Rusev Miro stuff in AEW or do they want her to quit? Are they trying to get her to leave? And then you're thinking, no, they're actually trying to uh, get her some, some turn, turn into a face, get her some sympathy here. Yeah, absolutely. And, and it's working. And then Lana's really selling it well. Like she legitimately looks really sad that, that nobody likes her on her team. And this keeps happening to her. So I'm not sure uh, where it goes if she, you know, if, if she ends up winning the match for her team or, or what. But um, this has been some pretty good, I don't want to say long term, but like kind of medium term term uh, storytelling over the last handful of weeks here. It has. Now, I don't really know what Lana's long term career looks like in WWE. I don't think she's with WWE past her contract. That's just personal. I think AEW would easily bring her in. Randomly, by the way, don't forget, she was an FSU cowgirl with Jen Sturger, and Sturger was, I think was, I don't think she is anymore, but at least was, maybe still is, a backstage correspondent with AEW. So there's that that connection. Obviously, Miro's there now, not that she needs Sturger as the connection. But I just don't think Lana's going to be with WWE long-term, because I don't know how many storylines you can actually do with someone who really can't wrestle. And I don't mean that as an insult, it's just true. Of all the women on the main roster, Lana's the worst wrestler. But I do think that they have a storyline right now for her because later in the show, you saw Asuka defeat Nia Jax by disqualification. Jax cut a decent promo on the women's division. Lana tried to interfere in the match and then Asuka wins by DQ, as I said, after Baszler interfered uh, to stop the Asuka lock. Then we got rewarded, thank God, with the women brawling and Lana finally eating the Samoan drop through the announce table for the eighth time. It's not that there's much to it, but I'm always going to pop for the drop. I also think that they're setting Lana up to have a big role at Survivor Series. I don't know if they can believably make her the sole survivor. Maybe they can. Maybe it's a scenario where she never gets tagged in. None of the women tag her in, but at the end, she's the only one left and she gets a roll up for the win or something like that. Maybe that's what happens. Or maybe during the middle of the match, she gets two eliminations and shocks. She tags herself in gets a couple eliminations, and all of a sudden, all the women are like, holy crap, what's Lana doing right now? But one way or another, this is going to play out at Survivor Series, and it's going to play out positively with Lana being a babyface, and I'm excited for it. Yeah, no, I, I mean, they've they've got me empathizing uh, with Lana in, in a situation where nobody likes her, she doesn't have friends, right. she keeps getting beat up, and I think it, it has, it's, definitely setting up for something at Survivor Series. Maybe maybe she's the last one on her team and something fluky happens and she's able to just run in there and grab a pin and get the win without doing anything. I think that's more likely than her like actually looking good as a wrestler and surprising. But uh I know like I could see I could see a scenario where like no one will tag her in. They refuse. We get down somehow to Nia Jax versus someone on the on the women's team that person rolls up Nia Jax or, or pins Nia Jax. Lana runs in, rolls them up, gets the pinfall. And like Nia Jax puts her on her shoulders after the match. Yeah. Like, I, you know, something as simple as that. And then all of a sudden, Nia, and then Lana maybe is hanging out with Nia and, and Baszler. And then 
Baszler and Nia finally break up. And then maybe Lana starts managing Nia Jax. And like, we got something there maybe. I don't know. I don't know, but there's something that's going to happen. I I know they're telling the story. People think that she's just eating these Samoan drops as punishment. And because they, no, they're telling a story and I like it. Yep. No, and, 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 you know, we talked about how a lot of these Survivor Series stories are, can the teams coexist? But this is kind of an interesting little different take on the idea. And it's interesting. For sure. All right, we had the United States Championship match that came out of nowhere, Bobby Lashley defeating Titus O'Neil. This was actually decent. Uh, I'm a little partial to Titus because he is a Florida Gator, chomp chomp, and, and I like him. But Titus, I thought, cut a good promo, and it was pretty pretty aggressive. They played off them the, the Hurt Business attacking Titus backstage a couple of weeks ago. Lashley took him out quickly with the Hurt Lock, so there was no harm done. I mean, Titus also made a pretty good point about Lashley being U.S. champion, but never defending the title after winning it from Apollo Crews. So, I don't know. It worked. No, I mean, the last two times we've seen Titus O'Neil, it's it's made me want to see more Titus O'Neil. I mean, when, when you look at the Raw Underground situation where he was right. able to look pretty good right. and build him up. I mean, he's he is physically imposing, and, and he, we know he can talk. He can do a lot of stuff. He's not the greatest worker in the world, but he he can play a role and frankly, I've just I've been surprised they don't use him more uh, considering his physical tools and, and what he can bring to the table in some sort of fashion. So, you know, the this truth didn't is la- this didn't last tr- long. This didn't last long here. But, you know, there's he absolutely I think there you can find a spot for him to do more. The truth is either he or Gulak who we'll talk about right now. He tried to, jo- to join the Hurt Business also. And I couldn't be help but be entertained by this. Gulak wearing that red suit, her business, not beating him up because he wanted to join and even considering actually allowing him to join because he was 24-7 champion, but they only beat him up because they couldn't stand that he was wearing a clip-on tie. And that <laughs> is so her business and it's such funny stuff. Uh, as Vince McMahon would say, it is such good shit. It is such good shit. That I just really popped when they did that. But I do think that there is something to be said for Gulak or Titus to join her business because you remember when Titus had like Dana Brooke as the accountant in like yeah. that dorky kind of role. Yeah. Put, give us, give the her business like a serious faction, someone in a role like that, where they do the, the dirty work almost for them, where Titus is handling contracts or um, he's maybe even the bodyguard for the her business to, if someone wants to talk to them, they have to at least go through Titus to get to them. I know they're kind of doing that with Big Jordan, with AJ Styles. So how do you do it twice? I don't really know. But it just feels like they could use an additional element to their team. And by the way, it was disappointing that they beat him up and the 24-7 titles there. And we're talking, what are we talking about? Shelton Benjamin and Cedric Alexander possibly winning the Raw Tag Team Championships sooner than later. I believe that they have a title match next week. In that moment, MVP should have put his foot on his chest and gotten the 24-7 title. Then all of a sudden, her business has four titles. They didn't do it. It's fine. Yeah, we, we say that every week. Why don't they just go grab the title and keep it? For sure. Uh, okay, so I mentioned the 24-7 title picture. We might as well talk about it. R-Truth defeats Drew Gulak in that backstage segment. Akira Tozawa defeats R-Truth. Eric defeats Tozawa. Gulak defeats Eric. Tucker defeats Gulak. Gulak defeats Tucker. <laughs> Tucker defeats Gulak. Grand Metalik defeats Tucker. Lince Dorado defeats Metalik. And then what happens? R-Truth winds up with the 24-7 championship, defeating 
Lindsay Dorado with an attitude adjustment. Uh, there were 10 title changes on one show, including nine in a singular segment. Somehow, despite this being a shit show, this was a little bit, I guess, of an improvement because the guys actually hit moves and got falls. But the fact that R-Truth keeps ending up with the title, it means no one else has a chance to add screen time. And look at what Gulak got to do in that segment earlier in the show. I'm not going to say that that one segment got Gulak over, but it gave him an opportunity to be featured a little bit more than he otherwise would have been. I would much rather see R-Truth get into a situation where he's chasing the 24-7 title and over a month or six weeks, he's unable to get it back. He keeps trying and failing to do so while other guys have the title and keep exchanging it. Do anything different than there's a bunch of title changes, but at the end, R-Truth gets the title. I understand it's a device for R-Truth. It seems like more than anyone else right now. It shouldn't be that. There's so many other things you can do with the 24-7 title. This just seems like ultimately a waste, even though that segment, you know, I'll give it some credit. It was more entertaining than most of those segments have been. Yeah, I I don't know what the point of the 24-7 title is. It's not getting anybody else over. You know, there was that bit with Drake Maverick back and forth that was pretty good. It's not, to me, it's not quite working with Gulak the same way. Um, especially since his character generally was a serious character was kind of the point behind all of it. I, I, I don't know. I just, I feel like they're like, you could do, you could do really wacky stuff with it, or you could treat it really seriously and they're doing neither. And it's stuck in the middle where it's just the R truth trophy. Like, well, I don't remember that, um, there was that intercontinental or mega heavyweight internet championship that was floating around that like, you know, wrestling writers want it, like a cat want it, you know, <laughs> I don't remember what right. exactly the, whatever that belt was called, but it became like an internet thing where it was just all the, it was going throughout all the indies, you know, Joey Ryan had it and stuff like that. You know, I, I think that's what the 24 seven title should be. If you want it to be funny, like, you know, Rob and it Stone, was for, it was it, for a little bit. Yeah. It yeah. was at the beginning. Rob Stone from Fox wanted, like, if you're going to do that, like really go into it. And I know it's hard because Thunderdome, you can't, you probably can't, you know, take it outside and do all types of different stuff. But it just, it feels like they don't know what they want it to be. And every week they don't know what they want to do. So they just end up keeping it on our truth and then we'll figure it out next week. And the next week they do the same thing and it's just it's know, going it's, nowhere. It's a closed set. I mean, they could do stuff in like the parking lot or something like that. But I mean, I mean you, you, you can't have just like random people or objects no, but or stuff. You know what you can do? You know what you can do? You actually said something really funny. Like you could have them be in the parking lot and like someone get tripped up or people knock each other out and like someone's dog walks over our truth's chest and referee like looks around and is like, I don't know, do I, do I pin this? And then counts the one, two, three. And then like whoever owns the dog, like puts the dog on its back later and like pets it and count, and the ref counts it again. Like there are funny little things you can do, you know, within this story, but they just, it's lazy. And the, and the roll up without people kicking out is so yeah. stupid. How, how has the roll-up suddenly become unbeatable in 24-7 kayfabe, but in nothing else? It's ridiculous. So we are, we've already spent too much time on it. I'm yeah, moving uh, us on. Real quick, it's the, it's the DDT Ironman Heavy Metal Weight Championship. So it's DDT, which is kind of a 
you know, jokey type of promotion. So, but, but is yeah, that, that, that's that, in Japan, right? That, yeah, that's, it's a, it's a Japanese promotion? belt. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So okay. that, that's that's what I think the 24-7 title should be, and they're just, they're not doing anything. It should be anything other than what it is. That's the truth. It, it could yeah. be a million different things, but anything other than what it currently is would be an improvement. Yep. Uh, we Back on SmackDown, we saw the Street Profits invite Big E to party with them. This segment had me absolutely rolling. Anyone who's grown up around guys like that know all the insinuations that were there with the busting balls and the laughing, but actually wanting to punch the other person in the face. Uh, It was smart to have them interact, by the way, because New Day is obviously going to be fighting Street Profits, at least as of right now, in a match at Survivor Series. And it would have been pretty stupid just to forget that Biggie's on that show. And then having Billy Kay run in and like shopping her resume and showing it to the Street Profits, but them already knowing her because she was on uh, Raw with them. The whole thing was great, and it's really smart, just comedy writing. Yeah, no, it was funny. I mean, those guys are all great, and it's always just fun seeing them together, and you kind of get the same vibe, you know, that he got with New Day and, and just guys who kind of know how to roll with each other and, and, and go with it. So it was funny. And now we'll end on a couple sour notes, what I thought were the two worst things we got on the entire week. We'll start with Raw. Angel Garza cuts another promo. These are doing nothing for me whatsoever. These should be vignettes showing his ability and seduction attempts on all these other women that he's hung around with, but instead they're stupid promos backstage. It's not getting him over. It's not doing anything for him. What's great about Angel Garza is his personality, I guess his seduction ability, the gimmick, if you want to say, and his in-ring ability. He's a great wrestler. I know he might be injured. He may be recovering from that quad injury, but this is horrible presentation. I mean, they did pretty decent job for Bianca Belair. They've done a, they've at least tried really hard for Carmella, even if you didn't like what they were doing with her. This is just nothing. It's him on screen to be on screen and it's not getting him over. I, I don't know what the plan is for him, but how can you have this guy and keep saying he's a Lothario when he's now no longer with women? Demi Burnett has disappeared off the face of the earth, by the way. And you know, they're, they're not doing the thing with Chuck anymore. So I just, I don't really get it. It's got about as much chance of getting over as Orange Cassidy. Yeah. Not working for me. You have anything you want to say on this? I'm I'm assuming you agree. No. Yeah. Okay. And then last but not least, Lars Sullivan on SmackDown. He's getting bullied or he was bullied in school. One week after doing a sit down interview calmly with Corey Graves in a polo shirt and slacks. Now Lars is doing a shirtless interview with Michael Cole, huffing and puffing, and then screaming and roaring at the end, saying he's bullied people into eating dirt, glass, and bugs as a kid. This was horrendously bad. Lars Sullivan is dead. Bury him. You can yourself too. I'm done with it. I don't want to see him ever again. I... Again, every week I don't, I don't get it. There's nothing there. It's not working. Dude, again, I'll say it. I'll say what I said last week. Turn him into a, give him a little guy sidekick. Turn him into a comedy bit like they've done with Drake Maverick and NXT. It's the only way. You're not going to get this guy over as a serious thing. Zero point zero. zero. No more Lars Sullivan. I don't have any more sound drops. No more Lars Sullivan. It's not working. Stop trying to make Lars Sullivan happen. It's not going to happen. 
Okay, that is the end of this edition of the Getting Over Wrestling podcast. I should really make it so we don't end on a sour note. I should I should put the negative stuff like mixed in somewhere. That way we should have ended with Street Profits and Biggie. That's the last thing we should have talked about. Nevertheless, it was another great edition of our WWE show where we broke down everything that happened on SmackDown and Raw over the last couple of days. If you have not heard it already, already head on over to our archives, wherever you listen to podcasts, and check out our AEW full gear instant analysis the silver king hopped on this damn podcast at like 12 45 in the morning cut like a 37 minute pod talking about everything that happened at full gear this upcoming thursday we are back with our nxt and aew recap show we'll talk about everything that happens on both of those shows we are heading towards the finish of 2020 and we have so much left for you as i've said i already booked a huge interview coming up for getting over. We also have our 100th episode spectacular and our year-end awards where all of you will be able to participate. The way that you'll be able to participate in those awards is by filling out some forms that I will create, but the way I'm going to distribute those is on Twitter. So what does that mean? It means follow this damn show on Twitter. I know how many of you listen. I know how many followers we have. That follower number should be growing up. I assume, I said growing up, going up. Most of you, I assume, have Twitter. Follow us at Getting Overcast. I also know how many people listen and how many reviews we have on Apple Podcasts. Those have a long way to go as well. So head on over to Apple Podcasts, drop a five-star rating and review. Let us know how much you love the show. It's been another long episode of Getting Over Wrestling Podcast. Plenty to talk about from WWE this week. As I said, back Thursday with NXT and AEW. And for any first-time listeners, we do WWE episodes on Tuesdays. So we will be back Tuesday talking all things WWE on the road to Survivor Series. Thank you all once again for listening. I'm going to give Savage one more day off. So for Chris Manini, this is the Silver King Adam Silverstein. And I only have three words left for you. Bye for now.